and welcome back to another episode of the Art vs. Commerce podcast, proudly presented by Masters in Motion. This week is film director Sasha Jenkins. Not only is he a film director, he's also a writer, a musician. Um, back in the day as a kid, he was a graffiti writer. Uh, we spoke about kind of everything under the umbrella of hip-hop, which is uh, a world that Sasha has been uh, interacting with and documenting and telling the stories of for his whole life. And um, the main reason that we were speaking today is to talk about the uh, Showtime series of Mikes and Men, which is a, a, a four-part documentary series on the Wu-Tang Clan. And um, I mean, the four-part series is excellent. I don't think you need to be a Wu-Tang Clan fan to enjoy it. And a lot of that comes with Sasha's approach about telling the holistic story about how they got to that point. And in order to understand them as musicians, in order to understand their music, you need to understand the world in which they came from and what they were brought up in. And that being then the result of, the result was the music and, and, and that interconnection in play. So you don't have to watch, you don't have to be a fan to watch, um, even though obviously if you are a fan, then it's awesome to see and get kind of uh, so much archival footage, so much um, behind the scenes footage. So it's, it's, it's fun, it's great, and it talks about things in um, really interesting, deep, layered ways, which uh, after talking with Sasha for an hour, it comes as no surprise that you know I would describe him in just the same way, uh, a deep and layered and thoughtful dude who has been um, telling stories in the hip-hop scene for a long time and taking a certain level of... Um, responsibility for doing it in a way that is is true to the environment which it comes from and he talks at length about that so uh a real pleasure and um really excited about this one and so that is sasha jenkins and we are like i said presented by masters in motion which is a three-day filmmaking conference that happens every year in austin texas in december and asc cinematographers ace editors big time production designers uh, all come down give presentations best part is that they uh tend to hang out afterwards you can grab a beer really get to know them on a more personal level in chat which is uh, i think what makes it special and you can go to shooteditlearn.com to learn more so this week on the ABC pod, Sasha Jenkins. Thanks for being here. You know, when I first sat down to do the research and realizing that you got, I mean, would you, I don't know if you would describe it as getting your start in all of this through graffiti. Um, what do you think it was about that art form that drew you in, not just to do it, but that it was also an element for documentation and sh and sharing that world with others. That seems like the first time you were doing that. Well, you know, I, I, uh, my mom is a painter and my father was a filmmaker. So I grew up in a home where I understood that culture was something that had value. And even though this was something we were doing as kids, you know, I grew up in Astoria, Queens and late 70s, early 80s, everyone, girls, boys, everyone had a tag, everyone had a nickname. So, um, you know, all the stuff that I've been doing in recent years in terms of uh, as a documentarian, it's really, I, I see myself as a guardian of, of identity because mm. all this stuff, hip hop, all the street culture, you know, this is stuff that's now respected around the world. Yeah. Um, when we were doing it, there was no money involved. We were mm -hmm. just kids expressing ourselves. And the, the ingenuity and creativity that is inside of that world, when you're coming from a place when there isn't much in terms of resources, when the educational system has very little hope or yeah. expectation for you, 
the fact that young people are able to create a language that is now global and universal is something that um, in my twilight years, now I'm approaching my twilight years, it's something I take more seriously than ever. And I think that there's something universal in the idea of wanting to be heard. Mm. Uh, you know, writing your name on something, rapping, you know, having a new name that you own and control, you know, my last name is Jenkins. That doesn't come from Africa, but if I can come up with a name and I like the letter combination or I know what it, it, it represents something very specific to me and I created it, there's a lot of power in that. Yeah. And I think I was drawn to that. I, I, I recognized at a young age that it, it deserved to be documented. And when I was about 17 years old, I published my first zine, which was a graffiti zine called Graphic Scenes in Explicit Language. And, um, you know, photography of subway graffiti back then, it was like trading cards. Yeah. Uh, I'm curious, yeah. when you when you did decide to do that and you're going from just making graffiti to having an urge to share it in a different way to be a documenter of it, where did that desire come from? And also, I guess, how did you know how to do that in terms of making a zine? And like what it takes to get that out there. Right. Well, there was a, a zine at the time called IGT, the International Graffiti Times. Eventually mm -hmm. it was called the International Get Hip Times because they felt that the term graffiti was a derogatory term. Mm -hmm. So I was a fan of that zine. And simultaneously, I was involved with the New York hardcore scene, which is hardcore punk rock music. And in that scene, there were also zines. So I was... You know, by the time I was 16, I was familiar with zines. I would go to stores that specifically sold zines. And I said to myself, I want to make a zine about graffiti. It was a very simple uh, idea. And, uh, you know, I went to my mom, who didn't have a lot of money, and I said, I'm going to need 800, 900 bucks to mm -hmm. make a zine. Somehow she got it. Yeah. And now, the rest is history. I guess a lot, because there are a lot of graffiti writers who obviously love the art form, but they're not. They don't also feel the need to make it, to, to share other people's work, to have some sort of, you know, centralizing publication kind of thing. Where do you think that was coming from for you? Well, graffiti is all about ego and you're dealing with young, insecure people. Mm -hmm. So um, in the graffiti world, it's like if you're like a lesser known or not really super well-known graffiti artist, um, you're, you're called a toy, which is an inexperienced graffiti writer. So like as a toy, your voice doesn't really matter. Yeah. Um, and as someone who's really advanced, you're too caught up in your own art to think about documenting other people's work. Mm -hmm. So I was somewhere in the middle. Of course, I didn't fancy myself a toy, but in the scheme of history, I was no one relevant in terms of what my contributions were to the art form. Yeah. So I wanted to find a way to make a contribution. And it was through... I've always had an interest in writing and photography and it was through publishing a zine and documenting other people's work that I was able to contribute on a level um, that was seemingly significant at the time. That makes sense. Two other graffiti zines in the entire world when I did it. So, Yeah, and um, how was the success of that? Well, the success of that, you know, we... I did maybe four issues and in the fourth issue I started to do record reviews and then a friend of mine that I grew up with 
um, he was somewhat in the music industry because he was producing beats for people at a very young age. And he said, hey, we should do, why don't we do a, a magazine? So I stopped doing the graffiti zine and then we wound up publishing a hip hop newspaper called Beatdown, which was one of the earliest hip hop publications made by people of the culture for the culture. And so what the graffiti zine did gave me a sense of understanding the audience, mm-hmm. that there was for it and you know I was building a name for myself you know I, I tell young people all the time like the way to get things done is to do what you say you're gonna do and so yes I said I was gonna do a graffiti zine I did that and once you do that and you can demonstrate to your peers that you have the ability to make things happen they're more likely to help you in your next adventure or enterprise and so sure the graffiti zine set up set the stage for hip for beatdown which set the stage for ego trip which set the stage for mass appeal which set the stage for vibe which set the stage for all the publications i wound up writing for and the books that i wound up writing and and the film yeah. and television stuff i've done since that makes total sense i i'm curious when you're back at the at this beginning and maybe you start you have that thing well i'm going to write a music thing now um because some, he brought that up did you understand at the time in that early beginning, like where you wanted to take all of it? Or was it more that you were just kind of following whatever smaller things were interesting you and not trying to kind of scheme a master plan, so to speak? I'm always curious because I think people can approach it both ways. I'm curious how you did. I mean, at that age, I wasn't really thinking that far in advance. You yeah. Know, I was sometime you would school, you know, I always had a, an advanced reading level. I was never really a big fan of math and was never always a fan of school in general. I had very short attention span for things that I wasn't interested in. So I guess at the moment, at that moment, I was just really interested in it. And when I'm really interested in something, I put my all into it. And I was able to recognize that when I put my energy into something, doors open. And sometimes doors open and people don't walk through them with me if a door opened i would run through it so i've basically been running through doors since 1989 essentially and that's no plan i mean you know now i'm at a point where i gotta like be a little bit more focused on what the goals are and i think Mm -hmm. subconsciously i've been working on the goals but now i'm a little bit more proactive focused on manifesting goals more more directly how do you where do you think it it comes from or it came from that you had the uh, understanding that when, you know, someone gives you an inch to take it a mile and that when things are opening that you had to act on it in that moment, where, where does something like that come from? Well, I think go, going back to my parents, you know, um, my parents split when I was young and my father died when I was pretty young too, but he was, mm, sorry. he's one of the founding producers of Sesame street. He had won some Emmys. Oh, wow. So, I came from an environment, even though I grew up, you know, as they say in the hood, in a single parent uh, environment, which is a common thing, I had advantages that other people didn't have. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a worldview that separated me from a lot of the people in my neighborhood who were, frankly, way more intelligent and more creative than me. I had a level of social capital that they didn't have. But what we all shared was a great level of cultural capital. Yeah. And going back to my environment, knowing that, you know, my mom is from Haiti and she is a traditional Haitian painter stylistically, but then she lived all over the world. And so there are paintings that she made of from a, a Haitian style painting in Lebanon 
you know, so it was her worldview uh, as expressed through her very specific art. I was exposed to that at a very young age. You know, when your father's making documentaries about the pyramids in Sudan, even if you don't fully understand in your youth, you understand that there is a worldview that's much greater than your neighborhood or what's what, what's going on. So mm -hmm. the benefit of having that kind of family that were wholly, in, you know, really into the arts and, and culture and history and creativity. Yeah, I can see that being such um, an unbelievable help, not just in, also in the reality that that, that kind of life is possible, that you can have a uh, career doing those types of things. I think it's hard for people who don't have that type of um, um, references around them that, that, that they could even do that. Because I guess for you, there was no question that you could kind of take this stuff and run with it and that there, there might be um, career-based stuff um, that, that, that could ferment from it. Because it wasn't like you had parents who were saying, when are you going to get a real job? I don't think that that wasn't the type of household you were growing up in. Well, you know, my mom is still wondering when I'm going to graduate from college, but I got, <laughs> I got a fellowship to the Graduate School of Journalism at Columbia mm -hmm. on the strength of my knowledge of graffiti, because I said, we're going to need arts journalists yeah. who can write about the connection between an arrow made by an art director for the NFL in 2002 and an arrow that was painted on the side of a New York subway train in 1973. Well, the art director at the NFL was a graffiti artist, and so the arrow is an iconic sort of move out of the graffiti world, and I can make that connection between a subway car and a logo for the NFL. So, you know, that got me into one of the most prestigious journalism schools in the world, and I got paid to go there. So, but my mom still asked me when I'm going to graduate from college. So, um, they... Education was something that was very important to my family. You know, all of my cousins go to fancy schools. My sister went to Cornell. But I was, my school was, I learned better on the job doing things. I have to physically do things. That's the only way I can learn. And as corny as it sounds, you learn in life that failure is the shit. Yeah. Failure is great. If you can fail, but then try, eventually you'll win. What happens is people fail and they give up. Mm. They don't understand the power of, of failure, the lessons that you get, and that's what I got. I didn't, I didn't finish school, but I got all of these lessons real time. Yeah, in terms of that um, continual moving up um, and going from one project to the next, was there something where you experienced a certain thing hit in a kind of way that felt like a larger break for you, or it was it all incremental? Um, you know, it's incremental. I um. You know, I published a hip hop newspaper and then I go to uh, uh, a free lunch, a meet and greet for a rap group called Hoes with Attitude. Mm -hmm. I'm there for the free shrimp. <laughs> I'm cracking jokes and I wind up meeting a guy named Rob Kenner who was an editor at Vibe magazine. Yep. Um, and he then offered... Uh, me the opportunity to write for Vibe, which was a, a brand new magazine at the time. Oh, wow. Um, and so you start out small and you, you know, in terms of writing. Yeah. And then the assignments got bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, so I had no idea where that was going to lead me. I went to 
to a luncheon for free shrimp, and it wound up opening more, again, the idea of opening more doors. Yeah. I mean, I, I love asking people that because more often than not, the notion of a big break is very few and far between, and it's great to continually hear these types of stories because it just highlights the point that it's a, it's the continual day in, day out, you know, getting after it, so to speak, versus one big thing happening. I think that there's just a lot to, to, to take away from that reality about it. Yeah, it, I mean, again, it's just another example of I went to this thing, I, wasn't, I had no expectations. I didn't go to the luncheon thinking I'm going to write for Vibe magazine. Yeah. I went there, I was myself, I cracked some jokes. Someone gave me a very small opportunity. And so, interestingly enough, um, you know, the first assignment I got uh, was, you know, they start you small. I wasn't, I wasn't going to write a huge feature, nor was I qualified. You right. know? So the editor who gave me the gig, he's like, I got good news and bad news. The good news is I got promoted. You know, I'm going to be editing features. The bad news is, well, you're not ready. Mm. But I'm going to introduce you to someone else mm. who's going to take job and that person kind of looked at looked me over and was like yeah whatever and then another editor walked in and just looked at me and asked me hey do you write record reviews i shit you not and i was like sure yeah you want to do you want to review big mike of the ghetto boys and i'm like (laughs) i'm an east coast dude but hell yeah that's a great opportunity so then i did a 150 word review, which became a 300 word review, which became an 800 word lead review, which led to a, a feature story on the group Bone Thugs and Harmony before anyone knew them. And mm. then, wow. led to, you know, numerous cover stories. And then, you know, again, doors open and I try to run through them. Yeah. As those things happen, I think one of the reasons where a lot of people don't run through them is out of fear. Um, fear, especially when you're being offered um, potentially a gig and they ask, you know, can you do this? And your confidence in it might not be, you know, supreme because you haven't done it before, but you don't seem to like, how, how, how do you deal with fear? Well, the fear is always there. If the the fear isn't there, there's something wrong. Yeah. But the fear is a powerful motivator, Mm -hmm. you know, you on your toes. Like I'm well known for having, uh, very little expression like my my wife will be like yeah this is you happy and this is you sad and this is you you know like (laughs) it's hard to read my emotions so people see me and they're like yo this guy is fucking you know he's talking he's in front of people he's confident but like internally anyone who does that like if if you don't have like a little bit of fear, something's wrong. But I see the fear as a motivator. I see the fear as a companion, Mm -hmm. you know, someone who is always going to be there for you. And, and, and it's, it's healthy. It's something that fear is that companion that keeps you on your toes and keeps you thinking of trying to keep yourself a few steps ahead. So I embrace it. Yeah. Uh, I, I would be scared if I, walked into a room or, or if I had to address a thousand people, I'd be scared. If I wasn't scared, I would think something was wrong. And people, again, they take failure the wrong way. They take fear the wrong way. But these things, if you look at them from a different perspective, they're, they are necessary evils, pun intended. Yeah. That help push you forward. They, they don't necessarily, there could be a temporary setback, but the setback is 
sit down and think it through. Sit down and come with a better approach. It's almost like criticism. And as someone who was a music critic for years, it's like, and I'm also a musician, so I've been on the other side of it as well. You Which know, I, I think is think great. If you, want to, if you want to criticize my music, I'm cool. I just want to know based on your writing that your mathematical equation is based on being a real fan of music. And right. that you can demonstrate in your writing that like, okay, you don't like my stuff, that's cool. But like, you're basing what you're saying on other musicians who did similar stuff or different stuff or what my influences might be or how I'm doing a crappy job with those influences. Yeah. If you're going to give me that fair shake and I can see that you know what you're talking about, yeah. fine. You can hate my stuff. But if you're a critic who uh, puts a lot of them, his or herself in the criticism and it's not based by anything that involves someone who actually knows what they're talking about, I don't respect it. And failure is a universal critic that is mm. honest. It's the most honest critic you'll ever have in your life and the most valuable critic you'll ever have in your life. Do you have, um, I'm just curious since you're talking about it, like an example of when there was some real failure and something did not work out, but then how that you can see the genesis for the, the next nice good thing. Anything that come to mind? It's fine if it doesn't, but... Yeah, I mean, for me, there have been... The, the progression from the graffiti zine mm -hmm. was a singular enterprise, pretty much me doing it myself, and then doing the hip-hop newspaper with someone I grew up with who, the first time I met him, he put me in a headlock, so that gives you a sense of what his personality was like. <laughs> you know... We're friends now, but we, we split apart for some years. And yeah. had we just, like, got over ourselves, our issues weren't really that deep. Right. And the thing with my childhood friend, I went from the graffiti zine, which was a singular thing, yeah, to a newspaper, which was a collaborative thing. Mm -hmm. And that got to a certain place. That enterprise ended, and I started something else called Ego Trip, which was a magazine that didn't just do hip hop. It was more reflective of my general interest, which is skateboarding, graffiti, hip hop, mm -hmm. punk rock, fashion. Yeah. So it was a progression. I went from a graffiti zine, I did by myself, to a hip hop newspaper, which was focused largely on hip hop, to a magazine that was more, that more fully realized my general interests, right? Yeah, yeah. So in that, you see the progression. Totally. You also see the how I'm learning about interpersonal relationships and how to do business with people, right? First thing I'm by myself, the second thing got but so far. The third thing beat down I mean Ego Trip lasted for some years and we did two books, multiple television shows, thirteen episodes of a magazine. Mm -hmm. a track to our book we wound up doing a lot of stuff over about 10 years yeah and then that relationship faded for various reasons um i've learned from each one of these projects and i've taken them to you know here i am now um you know mass appeal after ego trip folded mass appeal was a magazine that already existed yeah and it started out as a graffiti zine and then it evolved into something that documented culture, art, fashion. And so I was simply a fan. Like, I just called them 
just to tell them, hey, I'm a fan. Like, respect. I, I love where you're going with it. Then they called me and said they wanted to hire me. I said, you can't afford me. Keep doing your thing, though. And then when you go, by. go ahead. Oh, I see. So at the time that you reached out to them, you were in a position of a certain, I don't know what the right word is, but stature that they weren't big enough yet. You were just like letting them know as someone who was in the game. They're like, I, I see you and I like what you're doing. Yeah, I, I spend money on your magazine. I think it's great. Keep, yeah. keep, keep up the good work. That's it. I wasn't expecting anything. And then they initially said, hey, you know, why don't you come work with us? And I was like, oh, you can't afford me. And then a couple years later, they hit me up and said, hey, why don't we figure something out? And I said, all right, you'll make me the editorial director. Mm -hmm. I'm going to hire some kids under me who can do the job and give me some equity. And they did all of that. And Was your power position in that moment just because of the track record you've already built and that was just like you felt was that um i don't know were you was that a move by you or, or that just comes so fluidly that like i know how to like i know my worth and and because well, that type of negotiation can be tough but you're talking about it like it was so um not tough for you well you know i was dealing with people who were graffiti right you know like I yeah you're coming from like, totally they didn't have a lot of money, so it's like, okay, you guys don't have the amount of money that I typically get paid for this, so right. give me what you can give me, mm -hmm. put all the money against the team and the kid who you're going to hire, and give me a piece of the rock. You know, it wasn't, yeah. I'm not saying Johnny Cochran or some crazy, like, <laughs> no, lawyer, leader, but it was, it was simple, it's very, you know, I try to operate in a very simple manner, mm -hmm. and... I wound up hiring a guy named Noah Callahan Bever, who wound up running everything at Complex. He helped build Complex Magazine and the website, and basically everyone who came under him at Mass Appeal followed him to Complex. And so now a lot of those people are sprinkled around various industries of entertainment. Cool. I um, again, doors open, and I I see something on the other side of the door and then I try to see something else. I try to marry what I see on the other side of the door with my ideas before I walk in. That's interesting. So, I mean, because I guess that's a comment that just because someone's presenting an idea or an opportunity, uh, to take it at face value for what it is without putting your own spin on it, that would be somewhat not the point. Like, it has to have your, your DNA. I mean... That's my only value. Right. Like if, if I don't, if I can't offer up my DNA, then you can get anybody to do this shit. Like, what am I offering that is special? And that, to me, is what I learned from hip hop and graffiti. It's like, yeah, you gotta be original. You put your name on it. You know, this is you. Like, this is your identity. This is how people recognize you. You've gotta, you gotta say something, and people have to know it's you. Yeah. No. So true. Um, as you are going, I, I noticed that you were also, you've already done, um, or are currently working on other, um, music biographical documentary style things with, you EP'd the one with 50 Cent and that you were working on a Beastie Boys one. Where do you think the, um, why do you enjoy now kind of thinking about talking about of Mike's and Men? Where do you enjoy, why do you enjoy that type of, uh, content? Because there's so much wrapped up in music, um, yeah. culture, identity, location, influence. Um, I just get so much from music. I, I, 
it's a very visual form for me. Like I can listen to music and see things. You know, I can listen to music and score a film. I right. can listen to music and get inspiration. I can listen to music and write. Mm-hmm. I can't hip hop and write because I feel like the rapper is talking directly to me and that person needs my attention, but I can listen to other forms of music and keep pushing forward whatever writing or something creative I'm doing. If I'm painting or doing something, music is just is such an inspiration for me. I get it's like a drug in a way. It, it you know, it, it has the ability to heal you. Mm-hmm. It has the ability to, to comfort you. It has the ability to inspire you. Mm. And I've gotten that from, I've gotten so much from music and I've always been fascinated by the creators of music. Yeah. And for me, I always aspired to be a creator of music and I have created music over the years. So as someone who fancies himself a musician and has had the opportunity, forget about my own aspirations. I've been with 50 Cent and Eminem and Kid Rock and Outkast and Wu-Tang and, you know, Papa Roach. I mean, I've been with a broad range of musicians and artists and it's always fascinating to hear their stories because you realize that music is just therapy for most people. Right. You know, they, they get paid lots of money to do it, but for a guy like Eminem, when you get For to the know creator him, themselves, you're saying. Yeah, when you get to know Eminem's personal story, like you realize that music is just a way for him to deal with his trauma. Right. And when you imagine that, like, wow, your personal trauma, you're able to channel it in a way and channel it into art in a way that millions of people are fans of your work. That's That's amazing. Yeah, it's crazy. Particularly when you think about, again, when I think about hip hop, this is something we did as kids for no money. Right. And that kind of is, was my approach with, of Mike's and men, Mm Wu-Tang. So many people love Wu-Tang around the world, but do you really understand what these guys are talking about and what they've been through? Yeah. Because hip hop or black music in general, and probably all human music, is a reflection of and a reaction to the environment. Sure. That's all it is. Even if it's like grossly um, set in the world of capitalism and greed and chains and excess, even that is a reflection of and a reaction to the environment. Yeah. Um, So through music, there are so many things, so many bigger picture ideas you can unpack. Yeah. It's all... And I, I think it's also, again, just interesting that, like, the natural inclination is to document and share. Because, um, again, just not everybody's thought process goes that way. And I, I appreciate that that is kind of where you go. Um, when it comes to Of Mike's and Men, you know, I, I went through all four episodes and was writing down uh, questions and notes as they were popping up into my mind. And I think that the first thing that hits you very quickly, I think are, are two things, um, that we could talk about each separately. And one is the fact that like, there is so much content related to these guys over the last 25 years that I just, I can't imagine what the edit was like knowing that you're sitting on so much and that depending on how you cut it, you could make any given random interview that's in the archive relate to a certain topic or chapter that you're in. And I don't, um, that is just like a mountain that I don't even know how you begin to prepare to climb. 
Well, our archival team were beasts, mm-hmm. and our editors were beasts. You yeah. Know, Paul Greenhouse, who was the lead editor, is a genius. There's no other way to. Uh, yeah. He's an, he's an evil scientist. He's a mad scientist, but he's. <laughs> He's the scientist you want on your team, particularly about the Wu-Tang Clan. I mean, yeah, 5% Nation is a very important part of the hip-hop story and the Wu-Tang story. And, you know, Paul is, an, is, a, is, a, is a white dude from Connecticut who had an interest in this stuff. Mm-hmm. Black people don't always are, aren't necessarily interested in it. And When you're Paul, saying it, what are you referring to? The 5% Nation. Gotcha. It's in the film, you know, that whole sort of belief system Yes, was based on the Nation of Islam. So, you know, black folks don't really know enough about it. But the fact that Paul had a, a genuine interest in it and in his own time, in the years before this film, did his own research and had his own relationships. When he told me that, I said, well, you're the guy, you're the right guy for this. Mm-hmm. And uh, you also have to have a certain sensitivity. And I, you know, I expressed to him what was important to me mm-hmm. and storytelling i wanted people to really understand who these guys are and the environment from which they came and all of the things that they had to overcome to become who they are and it's vital uh, it's vital title, you know going back to the idea of you know of, of mice and men is an american classic and i think wu-tang are an american classic there's stories in american classic but unfortunately in america stories that involve black people aren't necessarily considered American classics. Yeah. They're considered African-American classics. And don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with being an African-American, but that distinction was created for a reason. Yeah. Because America is still lying about this whole idea of integration and inclusion and this post-racial idea. It's bullshit. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we continue to be marginalized. And I wanted to be able to go in and tell their story in a way that universally people can say, not only do I understand where Wu-Tang is coming from, I understand where a lot of young black men in the inner city are coming from and what they're up against. And yeah. in the process of making this film, I realized that it's the story of 90% of the rappers who find success in America who come from the inner city. You know, they start out with this level of inc- uh, they start out with a level of innocence. They're little kids. They sell newspapers. They play in ponds with salamanders. And then real life hits, and you see that the opportunities and the social capital isn't there. And then, as Raekwon says, when you realize that your neighborhood is worth a quarter of a million dollars a day, that's interesting to me. That would be interesting, interesting to little Bobby from Bayonne. Yeah. You know, or, 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 or some kid from the suburbs. Of course that's interesting. But when there's no alternative and there's no social capital, unfortunately, people sometimes make the wrong decisions. But you see that these guys are brilliant. And it goes back to what I said earlier. The, the cultural capital that we all had and the little bit of social capital I had that other people in my neighborhood didn't have. Like mm-hmm. when I see Wu-Tang, as Nas has said, the reason why they are so successful is they remind you, there's so many guys in a group, one guy is going to remind you of someone you grew up with. Yes. Raekwon reminds me of my, my man, Ronnie Hamlin, who drives a, a, a bus for, for the city of New York. He's a bus driver, you know, and, Whenever I see Raekwon, I call him Ronnie Hamlin. I have real warm memories of, of, of Ronnie Hamlin. And Ronnie Hamlin wanted to be a rapper, and he didn't make it. He drives a bus. But no one really expected anything of us or from us. Mm-hmm. Hip-hop just changed everything for so many of us. 
And it's, it's humbling to be in the position that I'm in to be able to tell these kinds of stories from a perspective that is seldom heard. Yeah. And I, the, the other part of, um, the other bigger thing that I was looking, that I was thinking about and it kind of hit me all at once was that having done documentaries in the hip hop world, I know firsthand the just the touchiness of the like the the political nature of telling a multifaceted multi character story um that's a really challenging thing to do and i I was just curious how you uh approached it because especially with a with a group like Wu Tang clan there's so many and to thread the needle of making sure in a way everybody feels that they got enough airtime that their that their opinion was heard and that they feel included i know that that is a lot to balance yeah i mean they're called the wu-tang clan for a reason at the end of the day they're a family so it's a story about a family yeah a family that's had great successes and also great dysfunction and that the story of every family in america every family has that aunt that you don't talk to or mm-hmm. you know some family you're not in touch with or you have some strife with there's a misunderstanding um that's Wu-Tang. So once we realized that we're telling the story of a family, um, it, it made it a bit easier. But it, it wasn't all the way easy at all. I mean, It was a process to get to that realization? Huh? It was a process to get to that realization of like treating it as if it's a story of a family? Well, I think we always knew. We always knew. But for instance, I've interviewed, I interviewed a lot of people who didn't make the cut. Oh, yeah, of course. But, but when we were making it, it was like, what do you need anyone else for? You have Wu-Tang, and these guys are great storytellers. What mm-hmm. do you need Kanye West or, or, or some of the other people we interviewed? You don't mm-hmm. need them. Mm-hmm. Even Kanye himself said, oh, I hate these documentaries. The quote we were going to use was, oh, I hate these documentaries where they just get famous people in them just to like hype them up, you know, hype up the doc. And of course, Kanye is connected to Wu-Tang because he's a fan, but you know, I agreed with him. I was like, I agree with you so much, you're not going to be in the film. <laughs> um, and he was right. Um, and it would have just been, to me, just putting him in the film saying that would have been, would have cheapened Kanye's worth because obviously he's certainly worth more than that. Mm-hmm. Just like an unnecessary... I wanted to have a really serious look at these guys. I mean, humor is always a part of what I do, so there are moments in there where there is levity. Yeah, for sure. But... but, but it, at the right time and right place. And bringing it back to Wu-Tang being a family, again, after you've interviewed all these guys and then you've interviewed everyone else for the film, you realize there's a family story, there's a spine here to follow, we've got the key members of the family, stay there. Yeah. That was the principle. Oh, yeah, I mean, there's enough meat on the bone with just them that, like, you know, it, it wasn't lacking at all. Um, mm-hmm. For certain moments with, with the editing, I was just... I thought it did a really good job of there was this balance between creating a certain sequence or trying to sell, tell a certain chapter where you're using archival footage and then you go into what I guess we could call like your a role of them in the theater. Um, and one, like one was a moment just talking about Method Man um, in the first episode and just like kind of establishing his, his specific rise that was also independent in a way from, from the rest of them and that, just the fluidity in which you're going back and forth between archival to 
to that theater scene and it's flowing super well and it almost like sentences are completing each other. That just seems like a very heavy um, process. I, I'm just curious how you like where the thought process was for the theater and did you know automatically that you were trying to create those those woven moments within the archival footage and how, how did you get to that final structure? Well, you know, getting all the Wu-Tang together is not like an easy thing. I'm sure. And I knew though, if I could get them all together, you would see the magic of who these guys are because you can't, as I've been saying to people, like you can't just get nine black guys and say rap and create. <laughs> although I believe all black people can rap, and I'm one of them, although I'm a horrible rapper. <laughs> There's a chemistry. There's a magic between these guys that can only be seen when they're all together because yeah. I interviewed all of them separately and it's 25 years later and they're all looking at the same events and they all have different stories. So why not get them together? So, um, we found a way to get them all together and I was inspired by two things. Uh, there's a film called Cooley High, which is a classic sort of film from the 70s where it's about like these guys you know young black men in chicago what they go through in the hood in the 70s mm -hmm. this classic scene where like a fight breaks out in the movie theater um and there's something about the energy of all those guys together in the theater that inspired me to feel like wow what if we can get that coolly high energy with wu-tang and then i was also inspired by the metallica documentary some kind of monster because that really involved the guys of Metallica doing a deep dive on their personal relationships, yeah. facing each other and being open and honest about things that they were uncomfortable about. So those were my two inspirations. And then going back to Cooley High, it was like, wow, what if we have moments from their lives and their careers up on the screen that they all see together and react to in the moment? Yeah. Um, and... Well, it's, you know. it's interesting just because I think sometimes with these documentaries, we want to act as though the making of the documentary itself is not another chapter within their lives, but it is. Right. right. Like, it, it, th that production day happened for all of them, and there are emotions related to that for them. And I think um, it's a fallacy to act like that's in a vacuum, and those interviews are just them regurgitating memories, but they're not. It let, it let the mo that moment itself be a moment worth recording you know yeah I, they didn't really know what to expect mm. you know i think they were briefed by their management but you don't really know until you're in the situation and so you're in a dark room in a theater a beautiful theater and then these moments from your life are flashing up on the screen and then you're with the guys who you lived through it with you know raekwon in the projects like yelling at the cops who just you know, pulled over their manager for no good reason because they said they heard that there were guns. And then you hear a guy in the background, yeah, they heard they had guns. They always say that. You know, that was like, and it's funny because the camera crew was like a European camera crew, right? Mm. So I, I, I've said to people like, yo, if that was like an all-black camera crew, it would have been a completely different outcome. So you have these guys in the projects who are at that point where the cops, the local cops, know that they're starting to have some success, so they're harassing them, but then they have enough success where a European camera crew is there, and they're filming, and the cops know that they can't do anything. And so Raekwon is yelling and screaming. But Raekwon himself probably knew in the moment that if it was a different camera crew, yeah. there would have been a different outcome. 
And so we lucked out on that footage. And it was such a, not only such a telling moment for Wu-Tang, but it's a telling moment for what young black men in the inner city go through every single day, even through to today. Totally. I mean, you had, you know, primary resources for all of that. And that brings me to something that, I, you know, I mean, I guess it it's part and parcel, but I thought it was great that there was a discussion on larger themes, societal issues. Um, now, of course, that's also because with when you're talking about Wu-Tang Clan, like that's guaranteed to happen because that's what all their music is about, too. Um, but it was just a great way that that you didn't you weren't passive about it there are just moments in the in the um series where it, it, you know you are just actively openly specifically talking about all of these issues that a whole generation had to deal with yeah and for me it's going back to what i said about hip hop being a reflection of and a reaction to the environment yeah you film about hip hop but you don't address the environment to me, it's insane. Yeah, like, you can't. Sure, you can. You, you could have made a film just about how great Wu-Tang were. And yeah, they had some strife. It's all over business. But like to understand the environment and climate from where they come from gives you a sense of why their business is the way it is. Yeah. And Divine says, I didn't know what a computer was. And then three months later, I was a master of computers. Like nobody masters anything in three months. <laughs> right? But, but then you learn that all of these guys came into the business with the same level of education and they learned on the way. Yeah. Did Divine make mistakes? Did Method Man make mistakes? Of course, right? But they were all learning on the job. That's yeah. what a family does. And so for some reason, when a family member makes a mistake, family members get more upset at the family member than they would from an outsider. So mm. it's a... It's, uh, I wanted people to see the environment because then that's the only way you're really going to ever understand Wu-Tang or any other hip hop group for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. And even in some of your interviews and some, like I was really impressed with the way that somehow the interview in um, ODB's house with his family, how that worked because it was so informal and there are people kind of everywhere and it's in, in a lot of ways it's breaking a lot, you know, rules just that you don't want to have, you know, random people in the background. And, and, and for some reason, that is what makes it so authentic that you are just hearing them all talk about it. Uh, that just takes, I was like watching that being like, I, I love that they, that this was pulled off because I know that that's not easy. You know? It's not what? Easy. Yeah, but again, this is, so this is just, this is how black people communicate. Like there mm. are people in the living room and an auntie in the kitchen. And like, you can see everyone. Like I wanted, I wanted them to feel like the family, whether they're speaking or not, they are participating in the conversation. They're putting their energy into the conversation. Yeah. I'm not just, I'm, I'm trying to be fair and give everyone as many people as possible, the opportunity to speak. I mean, ODB's brother, um, he's, He's just an uh, amazing drummer. I know him from, he plays in various bands. We play shows together sometimes. He's the sweetest guy in the world. When you, when you, when you see Dirty's family, it's like you have this image of ODB. Yeah. Oh, he's a bastard. Like, no, he had both of his parents, guys. And he has a wonderful family. Yeah. Very loving, sweet people. And the way you painted his Rhythm. relationship with his wife is beautiful. Yeah, I mean it's complicated. Sure. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, but uh, 
you know, I got criticized also because I guess there was some domestic violence uh, things that popped up between Dirty and his wife that oh, okay. he didn't address in the film. Mm. Um, but I what I was trying to help people understand is like, hey, this guy was complicated. Mm-hmm. This guy had demons. Mm-hmm. This guy was dealing with mental health issues and paranoia and other things. That's mm-hmm. what I wanted people to understand. But what Riza said to me, mind you, Riza is the only one who ever saw anything, and he only saw things after the fact. He never was weighing in, giving me notes. Right. What I what I made is what I made, and the other guys saw it for the first time at Sundance. And what Riza told me was like, you know what I'll say? Like, there were things in the film that made him uncomfortable. For, for, for many reasons. Mm-hmm. He said, I'll put that on the chin, but what I appreciate about the film, not to put words in Riz's mouth, but he said, you were fair. Mm-hmm. And the guys always complain about how they don't have their say. You gave everyone their say. Yeah. So for that, I'm willing to swallow things that I don't feel comfortable with or make me feel uncomfortable. But ultimately, I feel like you were fair to everyone and everyone had their say. I mean, as a documentarian, uh, that's that's got to be up there as like the highest praise to receive. Because I mean, that's the game, right? Like that's the that's the most difficult thing that you really hope to get right. Especially going to like journalism school, that ends up being that that type of approach is put up so high on a mantle uh, when your own subjects are telling you that you did that and that you made them uncomfortable, but they're cool with it anyway. I mean, right. that, that had to that had to be. Was that are things like that your benchmark for success of of a of a piece? For me, if I'm telling a hip hop story, the respect of the community is is first and foremost. Mm-hmm. Like, always gonna wanna create something where we can examine ourselves and look at some of the things that we do wrong that we can do differently. Right. But for me, like if. If the hood is saying, yo, you told the story that was fair to us, that's what matters first, because those are the people that I really have to answer to, and those are the people I represent. Now, again, as a journalist, I have to be able to tell the truth, and the truth isn't always pretty, but I think journalism is is really about respect, not only respecting your subject or respecting yourself. If you're going to cut corners or you're going to consciously not interview someone because you don't like them or your own personal biases. It's respecting the truth. Yeah, you're not, you're not, um, and there's great power in that respect and that truth. Mm -hmm. That's important for people. uh, That that helps us get the story right. I mean, it's never going to be perfect ever. There are plenty of things I'm sure I could have done differently. There are people who are mad that they're not in it, but Mm -hmm. I've got so much time to tell a story and we've got to find the most impactful way to tell that story. Yeah, I don't think there's ever a scenario or there's ever a version where you're not getting that type of thing from somewhere. That's yeah. just impossible. It happens. Like, there's, it's impossible. Um, well, kind of like last question then. Um, going forward with the level of success that you've had and the opportunity to tell such a wide variety of stories in a lot of different mediums. What are you, how are you viewing where you want to take things now? And you had mentioned earlier in the conversation, trying to be a bit more, um, I guess, proactive in like thinking about goals. Where, what is that type of, uh, what does that look like for you now? 
Well, there there are some narrative things that are being looked at. Cool. I have the opportunity to get involved with. Um, Great. And there are some documentary projects that will involve some like reenactment and some narrative type stuff. Mm-hmm. Great way for me to sort of get my feet wet. Definitely. And make that transition. So, in, you know, I'm, I've been telling very particular stories for a reason. Like I'm, I'm the cr- chief creative officer here at Mass Appeal now. You know, we are a full-blown production company, creative agency, record label. We do a lot of different things. And so as, as the chief creative officer you know, and head of development, you know, my job is to bring in projects that kind of speak to the brand and also speak to our strengths and also expand what the storytelling we can tell. And so I did a film called Fresh Dress, which is about the history of hip-hop fashion. I did a film called Burn, Motherfucker, Burn, which is about the so-called riots of Los Angeles. Um, I did a film called Word is Bond, which is about those who write rhymes, you know, the, the art of lyricism. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, fashion, you know, sort of environment, sociopolitical climate, um, the art of writing. These are all things, at least coming out of the black community, that um, they're different pillars, different sort of important aspects of what that life and what that world is about and what it generates and what it creates. And so... I've been trying to tell these stories in a bit of a circle to demonstrate to people, listen, I know, I know this world better than most, and I don't just see it as a job. I see it as I'm representing an identity that's very important to me and lots of other people. And when you consider hip-hop identity, that's a global thing now. A yeah. lot of people can re- relate to hip-hop and see hip-hop as their way of life. So I am, I've been pretty proactive in in my storytelling to sort of show a diverse range of what I'm capable of doing Mm -hmm. in that role. And the goal from there is to sort of jump into narrative or jump into, you know, bigger docs. Although I will say like the Wu-Tang, you know, so many people love them around the world. It's four parts. People seem to really dig it. You know, the, the, the pressure's on to like, you know, not every film is going to be Wu-Tang, you know, not every film, but it, but it's like, it's like a heroin addict who's chasing that high, you know, you you always, I mean, it's a horrible analogy, but I always want to push myself to try to go beyond what I did before. And you just never know, maybe it doesn't get any better than Wu-Tang, but I think it's um, a real inspiration to, again, look at what my strengths are, look at what my weaknesses are, surround myself, which we did a great job here at Mass Appeal with surrounding me with a team of people who are brilliant, who work extra hard. And I always say it takes a village or it takes an entire housing project. And <laughs> we had a great, you know, people really like Wu-Tang and I'm the director. I'm just the captain of the ship. There are a lot of other people who worked really hard on it. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's um, continuing to surround myself with great people who can, who I can learn from, which again, for me, it's always like, I don't learn traditionally. I like to learn hands-on and I like to surround myself with people that I can learn from. People can learn something from me Mm -hmm. and collectively we can make great things. Yeah, man. I mean, filmmakers are adrenaline junkies. Like the, the, the highs and then the lows and then the highs again. 
um, from project to project or even within within a project. Um, it's kind of, I don't know, it seems to be the pretty standard across everyone I talk to because those, those moments are kind of what we're pushing for to have happen again. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's almost like with Wu-Tang, it's like, uh, you know, your last kid moved out of the house and you're trying to figure out what's next. And I, I've got some things lined up, but, yeah. you know, coming down off of Wu-Tang, it was so intense. You know, we spent all this time making it and then mm. festival circuit and all this press and I'm doing press with the Wu-Tang guys. Like, wow, it's like I'm in Wu-Tang. You know, it's great. <laughs> I'm rolling around with these guys. Um, so... Um, yeah, coming down off of that and and being where I am now is uh, is an interesting transition. But again, I'm, I'm very lucky. People really seem to dig in. It's creating other opportunities for me. So hopefully we'll talk again sometime soon. I'll have some interesting things to discuss. Yeah, man. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing everything. I, I've been really looking forward to, to chatting with you about it. Um, there aren't that many people I've had on that have such... Um, a history in just like the graffiti culture and hip hop in general. And to be able to talk about that, something that, you know, has always mattered a lot to me too. So it's been great to hear your, your thoughts on everything. Cool, man. Well, make sure you go check out beyond the streets. Uh, I think you'll really dig it. man. Definitely. Definitely. The biggest graffiti street art show in history. Amazing. Uh, fantastic. Cool. Well, and you were the cura- the curator of that so that people know. One of them. One of them. Not multiple, but one of them. Yeah. One of them. Awesome. Well, thank you. Take it easy.